This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. you do under the apple tree. I don't know what Mark Gurman does under the apple tree, but he covers Apple so well for us at Bloomberg News. Uh, and uh, one of the big issues over uh, the, the uh, Intel earnings last week was where could competition possibly emerge, especially with security flaws in the Intel chips themselves, maybe from Apple, an Intel customer. Uh, Mark Gurman's done an interesting story on the Bloomberg terminal at Bloomberg.com about Apple's chip-making abilities, Mark, which are? Which are quite impressive for a company that, out of the gate, was not a chip maker like Qualcomm and Intel. And like you said, you know, the story timing is perfect because you have all these questions about, hmm, what's going to happen now to Intel, ARM, AMD after these chip flaws? Well, it's going to be other companies that are not necessarily chip makers diving into making more of their internal components. So, Mark, get get down into the specifics for us. What exactly has Apple been doing? How much money, time, effort have they put into it? And, and, and where is it showing up in their products? It's basically showing up everywhere. I mean, every iPhone that has come out since 2010 uses a processor that's based on a design from Apple. It's basically manufactured by another company like Apple does. It always outsources manufacturing, but it was designed internally. And prior to Apple turning its own chips out in 2010, they used chips from ARM-based uh, designs manufactured and produced by Samsung. So that was a big change for them. And every year, they basically come out with a new iPhone and iPad chip. And this past couple of years has actually been very significant because they came out with a series of new chips. They came out with their own graphics processors, which basically controls what you see on the screen and gaming, their own chips to replace Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connectivity, and then a chip called the Neural Engine late last year to run artificial intelligence tasks. So lots of chips coming out of that company at this point. It's interesting, not least because the, the cost of manufacturing these chips, I mean, the cost of building a fab uh, a fabrication facility so I said fab because, you know, Mark, we're kind of inside Silicon Valley. Oh, we can throw please. around terminology, you know. <laughs> a little mansplaining, or, but thank hip, you very hip much. to the cool cats. Uh, but, but the cost of building a fab is so extreme. The technology to develop them. I had um, uh, I was having dinner with one of the Intel CEOs once upon a time, and he told me that he was one of three people, the entire company, who knows all the steps necessary to manufacture uh, a, a, one of the, their CPUs. That they keep it so secret that that no one anywhere can compete with them, and even that there's not a security risk, just well known enough, so that they so that if something happens to one of them, somebody else can finish the job. Um, I, it's amazing to me that Apple can even Apple can achieve this level of of uh, complexity. Yeah, I mean, given the cash reserves that Apple has at this point, like as of us talking right now, when he can't buy everything, Mark. <laughs> that is true, but in this case, it can buy chips. Um, I wish money could buy everything, but right now they're the one. I wish you were buying. <laughs> they're the one company that can afford to do this. I think Google is not far behind. I think Samsung has been doing it for a while, but they're the one Silicon Valley, you know, hardware maker and software maker that can do this well, right maybe, now. Maybe what? Maybe Facebook. Maybe Amazon. I mean, 
those are companies that also have got some very peculiar needs. I mean, I think the most interesting thing, one of the most interesting things going on in the entire world of enterprise technology uh, isn't crypto, but it is, in fact, the, the ability of some of these big companies to white box their servers that Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon uh, and possibly Microsoft, we don't know, are creating their own servers with their own specifications and not going out to buy from Dell and HP and the like. That's right, but you know Amazon still uses their own C CPUs sourced from other manufacturers, right? One of the big questions was how is Amazon going to be affected by these meltdown inspector chip flaws because they do use CPUs from some of the affected companies, including Intel. So the question rises, will Amazon start designing their own fabs in order to create or design their own chipsets to power their server farms and their data centers? And I think that's a question that we'll see answered within five years. And that's what I want to do is put my investor hat on. Right. I, I mean, what does this mean, maybe potentially for invest uh, for Intel longer term or some of the other major chip manufacturers? Um, you know, could we see a day, Mark, where, you know, Intel is going to have a troubled business? I mean, it's inevitable that um, Apple will kick Intel out of its Mac computers. Mm -hmm. They've already started the process uh, by moving toward their co-processors designed by, you know, the Apple, the same chips in the iPhone and some of the Macs. Eventually, they'll kick Intel out completely. It's it's bound to happen. There's pretty much no way it's not going to happen. I might be talking five to ten years, but it's definitely going to happen. They've been working on this for a while. But in terms of your investor question, truth be told, Apple is Intel's fifth largest largest customer. So maybe they're, it might be on the smaller side. So how is yeah. this really going to affect Intel and its bottom line? It's to be seen, but I don't think it's going to be incredibly damaging long-term to Intel. And it only makes sense for Apple to do as long as they're making a ton of products, correct? I mean, there has to be that demand for it to make sense for them to have chip production in-house. Right. Like our, you know, our chip expert, Corey, said, it costs a lot of money to build up processors and fabs and hire these designers. I think that was the math that I did to a lot of. <laughs> yeah. um, don't build up the ego anymore, all, Mark. Ian Come King, on. Ian King is a Bloomberg <laughs> That's chip right. expert. Ian okay, that, 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 that is true. That is true. Well, but Ian is the chip king. I have been covering semiconductors for a very long time, though, and it's an interesting development here. And, you know, the other thing is that, is a part of the, the deal, I think, is that there was a time, which you wouldn't remember, Mark, but when, when you had to get a new computer every every other year because it wouldn't run the applications you were using or you'd pushed it to the limit, and that there was a new Pentium chip and a new Microsoft operating system every 24 months or so that was going to let you run things the fastest ability, and that's no longer the case. Now, is that from your hedge fund days, having to, to upgrade annually? pre Pre, pre that, yeah, that that that's that's uh, that's. Uh, I'm not suggesting ago. you do the same thing in your personal life, but you know something to keep in mind. Mark, thank you very much, Mark Gurman. You're in our LA office right now, right? I am. It's the lovely uh, view of the golf course. Here. Oh yeah. So good, Mark Gurman, Bloomberg News Technology Product Reporter, covers Apple for us uh, and so well. Check out Gadgets with Gurman on Facebook because I love talking to Mark. He really does get into gadgets and breaks them down. Uh, yeah, the good, uh, bad, uh, and the uh, ugly. Great stuff from Mark uh, in all the media formats in which he's available. If you catch him in real life, get involved. He's good people. Mark Herman, uh, thank you very much. Listen to Bloomberg uh, Markets. I'm Bloomberg. I'm Corey Johnson. She's Carol Masser. And this is Bloomberg. Off to a strong start when it comes to M&A. We heard Charlie Pellet just talking about Keurig Green Mountain taking control of Dr. Pepper. You've got Dell said to be considering a sale to VMware. Uh, and some other things going on. M&A lawyers definitely busy over the weekend. Let's get an update on the mergers and acquisitions environment. John Reese back with us, global head of M&A at White & Case, on the phone with us here in New York City. John, how busy are your guy, uh, you guys been uh, so far in 2018 when it comes to uh, takeovers and deals? 
We've been extremely busy, Carol, uh, out of really the third quarter and fourth quarter of 2017 and into 2018, and we remain very optimistic for 2018 at this point. What's driving it? Well, I think what's driving it is the usual stuff that we've talked about for a while, a lot of cash, low interest rates. But as you know, there's enormous confidence on a global basis, and particularly in the United States, both consumer confidence, business confidence, and um, an extraordinary stock market, uh, which provides a lot of opportunities for people and a lot of optimism. Obviously, People wonder, where's the top? What happens uh, when we breach 27,000, 28,000? What, what does a dip mean for the M&A market thereafter? But right now, things are looking very strong. Are there new drivers? And I'll, and I'll get to the specific deal in mind if you tell me yes or no. But, but are there new drivers in, 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 uh, sort of financially in, in the world right now, not just low rates? <laughs> I, I, I don't think they're new drivers per se, other than obviously you've got some tax benefits with the overall lower tax corporate rate. That provides some value as you look at things. Well, so, and the reason I ask is because of this interesting Keurig, uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple deal. So, Keurig Green Mountain, which is uh, owned by JB Holdings, uh, doing a deal with, uh, to combine with Snapple. Uh, it was said in the news room this morning, and it is not true that it will be called Crapple, that they're going to call it something oh, else. Oh, that but it were true. Keurig, Dr. Pepper, Snapple coming together. Uh, uh, my old firm was once short. Uh, at least we looked. I knew a lot of people who were short uh, 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 Green Mountain, so it had other nicknames at the time. But uh, it's, an, it's an odd deal in that it's a private firm acquiring this public entity and, and, and it, it's, it, or combining with it. It's, it's an interesting deal. Yeah, I think it's an interesting deal. As you know, again, we've got to be very careful, White and Case, talking about specific deals because of the breadth of our practice. But the other deal that you mentioned at the you know open here is a very interesting deal also. Again, I look at a lot of these deals from that perspective as you know broadening their reach, real strategic potential objectives, things that uh, maybe you wouldn't have thought about last year. I mean, who would have thought of um, you know some of the tech companies buying the brick companies? right? Um, so there's just a lot of expansion and a lot of ways into different geographies, different markets, and different products. How much of this, though, John, going back to kind of what's the drivers, is it that we now know what the tax overhaul plan is and that CEOs were kind of marking time at the end of last year, waiting to see how it played out? Now we've got, you know, they've got the, the opportunity to bring a lot of cash back to the United States and potentially do more deals. I mean, we're off to our strongest start since 2000. Yeah, um, and it's a really good question, Carol, and, and, I, and I don't know that we're really sure about the answer. I would say that we had a bit, very busy third and fourth quarter. I think the fact of the tax bill passing takes some uncertainty off the table, clearly, and the uncertainty in the third and fourth quarter probably kept a very busy third and fourth quarter a little bit slower than it should have been. We still have some uncertainty, though, right? We still have some uncertainty on the regulatory We side. always have some uncertainty. This is one of those cliches that starts to make me nuts. You're not that you're engaging in the full cliche, but it starts to make me nuts. 
Well, once we get this uncertainty behind us, the market's yeah. going to, yeah, that ain't going to happen. I mean, what specifically I, I, are you I, concerned I, about? Well, I, I think that's a, actually a really good point, Corey. You know, a lot, a lot of us, you know, there's a lot of cliches in what we all do and say. I think the difference here is, number one, we know that China outbound, both from what's going on in China and what's going on in the U.S., was a dramatic uh, change in the M&A environment um, between those two jurisdictions. And I do think that people seem to have held back in terms of some M&A activity because of some of the uncertainty about the tax laws, not a ton. And I do think that in addition to the sort of CFIUS-related stuff, um, I do think that Trump and the antitrust situation remains somewhat uncertain. I agree with you. I don't think that's enough to stop deals as we've seen what's going on. Um, and yeah. as you know, they're about to fill those appointments. Right. Um, but we're, to me, the biggest risk right now is, you know, what happens when the stock market stops climbing? That, that will certainly be a big one. John Reese, nice to get some time with you. Global head of M&A at White & Case. No, I got it. If you want to come get it, stand next to this money like, hey, hey. Let's talk a little bit about the convertible market, because U.S. convertible bond sales were up 11% so far this year compared with the same period last year. Speaking of shake your money maker. As the number of transactions advanced. Healthcare companies, by the way, selling 54% of this year's convertibles. That's the most of any industry. Let's head to Beverly Hills to talk more about the convertible uh, bond market. That's where we find Ravi Malik. He is... Uh, she, forgive me, uh, is portof- a portfolio manager at SSI Investment Management joining us on the phone. Ravi, nice to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of trends in the convertible markets right now. Uh, thanks. Uh, so there's been a pickup in issuance, quite substantial, and we expect that to continue this year for a variety of reasons, um, three of them, one being that we've seen historically a positive correlation between rates and convertible issuance, and we just saw the 10-year yield break 2.7%. That's a big reason. Mm-hmm. Two, when the economy is doing well, there's a need to do to raise cash, whether to expand or to do M&A, and that would be another driver. And finally, the tax law changes are actually very favorable to convertibles. Because what has happened is that there's a limit on deductibility of interest expense. And since convertibles uh, offer an instrument that has a lower coupon rate than straight bonds, uh, companies that are right at the cusp of not getting the tax deduction can do, issue a convertible and, and get all of it. As wait, wait, as explain, explain it to me. So, so a convert obviously is, is a bond that converts into stock. Yeah. Uh, after certain conditions, typically a price that rises. Yes, yes. So what happens is that, uh, for especially for a company that is on the cusp of high yield, a double B or a single B company, uh, quite often they might be hitting up against the cap on interest uh, expense deductibility. Under the new law, uh, only 30% of EBITDA is allowable as a deduction as interest expense. And what was the old law? And it, uh, under the new tax change. Right. No, tax, uh, so under the new tax, it's 30% of EBITDA. Under the old tax, it's what? Uh, under uh, under the old, uh, there was no limit on oh, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is that for a leveraged company, um, you know, when they come to the market, uh, if they were running up against this this limit, uh, they can issue a convertible at a lower coupon because they're issuing a sweetener in terms of the equity option, and so it becomes far more attractive for them to to issue that. But aren't the rate? But if if they're already up bumping up against the cap, why aren't they still bumping up against the cap with the new issuance? 
Is it because the rates are lower uh, than where they were? I mean, I would think everyone who, who could have refinanced these days already has. Uh, well, if they're issuing, doing additional issuance, and if they were contemplating issuing a straight bond, they would probably run into the limit while they might still be able to get under the limit if they issue a convertible. So I, don't, I still don't understand. So, uh, under, so under a convert, it doesn't count because it's a convert, not a straight bond? So, for instance, let's say if, the, if a straight bond uh, would have commanded an interest rate of 5%, uh, a convertible bond would probably be issued at 2 or 2.5%. Two because you've got the stock kicker and later on so you can borrow exactly. more. I get it. Now, I'm slow. Right. You figured it Ravi, out. Now. I'm slow. So, well, so here's another question for you. Uh, is, at the bottoms of a market, when times are desperate, this desperation financing can often lead to some really funky convertibles with sort of toxic resets and all sorts of things. Are we seeing the converse here where we're seeing just straight converts, convert the stock, and the, and the difference between where the stock price is today and where it converts is very far away and things are not that interesting? What, what are we seeing in terms of the, of, the, of the character of the converts being issued these days? Uh, the issuance is uh, very healthy instruments. It's uh, basically um, companies that are growth companies, you know, examples of issuance. You know, Tesla has done multiple issues. Um, you know, we've had a, a lot of tech and healthcare issuance in the space. Biotechnology, when there's M&A, that, that's often a driver of uh, convert issuance. Uh, what we find is that a lot of these instruments right now are convertible bonds which uh, happen to be senior in the capital structure. They are senior unsecured notes. So they definitely um, provide a certain amount of safety and security uh, based on where they are in the capital structure. And these are most of the, the over 80% of the issuance has been uh, convertible bonds. So problematic for this marketplace, um, Ravi, would be if we started to see some kind of deleveraging going on uh, more broadly and any kind of significant economic global slowdowns, most notably China. Yes, that, that is correct. And uh, what we're seeing, though, right now is synchronized global expansion. Uh, there's an acceleration all across the globe. Europe is actually caught up to the U.S. rate, uh, most recently 2.7% GDP, and actually based on some of the leading indicators, it seems to accelerate even further from that. China, as we know, had beat their fourth quarter numbers. In the U.S., the biggest uh, um, incentive is the changes in the tax law, which I believe are going to spur uh, capital spending. We are seeing surveys that indicate over a 13% increase in CapEx, uh, which would uh, drive further GDP growth. And, you know, with the tax cuts, the increase in consumer spending, um, all of that, I think, leads me to believe that, uh, you know, we're seeing that in the numbers as well. The earnings that have come out so far uh, and the projections for the first quarter are very, very strong. Um, you know, over 100 companies have reported, and we are looking at them uh, for the first quarter, estimating over a 16% growth in earnings and 7% revenue growth, which is very, very strong. Ravi Hopmalik, uh, portfolio manager at SSI Investment with a fascinating look at the world of converts. I love this stuff. A long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Well, will it? Right ahead of the State of the Union, we're seeing the president with uh, poll ratings that are so far below anything we've seen from a president in recent memory. One wonders what's going to happen in the next election. So uh, with a look at that, Greg Giroux joins us right now, Bloomberg government reporter. Uh, with a possible big win, they're, they're, they're trying to tampen uh, expectations here, I understand, uh, Greg. But what is the talk in D.C.? Well, the White House's party always 
almost always loses ground in Congress in elections held at the midpoint of a president's term when more energy and enthusiasm lies to the opposition party. Uh, so I think Republicans are bracing, have always braced for a very difficult election year. But uh, so many of these midterm elections are tied to the president's approval rating. And generally speaking, the lower Trump's, President Trump's approval rating is, uh, the more difficult it will be for Republicans. So, all right. So how tricky might it ultimately be? Uh, well, um, the historical data show that, um, you know, the president's party usually struggles in midterm elections like this and that, plus mm-hmm. some early polling and campaign finance data, the results of elections held since Trump was elected, and an uptick of Republican congressmen who are retiring this year, including a very senior member from uh, New Jersey, uh, announced today, show it's you know likely to be a good year for the opposition Democrats, especially in the elections for the House of Representatives, where they need a net gain of 24 seats, but it may be tougher for the Democrats to win control of the Senate, which Republicans control by just two seats. Uh, but they have a, the Republicans have a very favorable map that may be able to withstand a, an anti-Trump surge. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, that, that uh, inability to command other House is what matters more, right? I mean, picking up a seat here or, or, or there uh, in the House, or you know, many seats in the House, wouldn't be enough to change what the House does. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that um, one thing we may expect, one thing we may have in the uh, the next Congress come in January is a divided government. Uh, we, not pres- you know, Trump will still be president, of course. The Senate may still be in Republican hands, although it could be a 50-50 Senate or maybe a power-sharing agreement. And the House um, may assert uh, the margins there will be certainly closer than they are today. Uh, you know, Republic the, the Republicans are um, you know they can afford to lose about two dozen seats, as I mentioned. Um, uh, but um, it, it's going to be—it's it, not going to be easy for the Democrats to win, uh, uh, you know, 25 or 30 seats in the House for reasons including Republican advantages and how district lines are drawn. And uh, you know, we still have nine months until the election, so they can make some course corrections until then as well. Greg Giroux, he is reporter with Bloomberg Government. We're talking to from uh, our bureau in uh, the nation's capital. Hey, Greg, you know, in your story, you talk specifically too about Trump's President Trump's approval rating, um, which is not great at all. But I feel like fool me once, you know, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. Uh, or is it the other way around? Yeah, maybe it's the other way around. But anyway, I guess my point is we, hope so. <laughs> we got fooled by polls going into the presidential election. And does it really matter? I mean, I'm just I wonder if we can be swayed in the wrong way when it comes to some of the polls that are out there. Yeah, we should always be mindful of that. Um, and certainly in the 2016 presidential election, uh, Trump did not have a great uh, approval rating, um, but he also had uh, Hillary Clinton as a foil in that election, which is not an advantage he'll have, the Republicans will not necessarily have in the 2018 election. They will try and run against a Democratic majority or the specter of a Democratic majority led by Nancy Pelosi. I'd expect a lot of Republican ads to kind of raise that again, you know, referring to, quote unquote, a liberal San Francisco speaker if the Democrats Democrats win control. Uh, but there is an, there is a pretty healthy, if imperfect, relationship between the president's approval rating and how uh, his party does in the Congress. And um, Trump's approval rating is only in the high 30s right now. I, I know a lot of his members uh, of Congress and his party would like to see that above 40 percent. Well, and, and, and even, even that, I mean, it's, it's what we saw from the election is the, elect, the map matters a lot here. 
But so does the redistricting map. And, and what we're seeing from court cases in North Carolina and Pennsylvania is um, a, a real challenge to gerrymandering, maybe the most robust challenge to gerrymandering ever. And uh, while North Carolina's has been punted, it looks like, at least until after this election, Pennsylvania's looks like it might not be. And I wonder to what degree does, it, does uh, undrawing the redrawn maps, uh, could that affect this election? Yes, in Pennsylvania, it absolutely will have an impact, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court there has invalidated a Republican-drawn map under which that party won 13 of 18 seats in each of the last three elections. Even 13 though, of 18 in an evenly divided state. That's right, a state that Trump barely won and that historically has you know, leaned a little bit more Democratic in presidential elections. Um, part of that, I mean, a big part of it is how Republicans drew the map. The Democrats also generally have the disadvantage of being more, more concentrated in districts than Republicans. So it's kind of easy to lasso Democrats into supermajority districts in Philadelphia and, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, whereas Republicans are a bit more efficiently spread out. Right. Long way to those uh, midterm elections. Still several months away, uh, but uh, some interesting things to be thinking about uh, as we go to them later on this year. Greg Giroux, he is reporter at Bloomberg Government, joining us from Washington, D.C., right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bits is helping kids to become inventors. Here with more on what this company is doing and why its founder shows up on so many who's who lists when it comes to innovation and creativity is Aya Badir. She's founder and CEO of Little Bits, alumna of the MIT Media Lab and so many more affiliations. She joins us uh, here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, nice to have you. And I know you've been involved with some other uh, Bloomberg events that we've done uh, over the years. Tell us what, you, what you're doing with Little Bits. So Little Bits um, is a a system of electronic building blocks. Our goal is to empower kids everywhere to become inventors using technology. So we want them to create anything from a robot to a self-driving car to a blinking shoe, all with the purpose of learning, getting excited about technology and being creative with technology instead of just consuming it. It's interesting, too, um, when, when you identify this market, I mean, we've been overwhelmed with stories talking about how girls in particular just don't. They get at a certain age, you know, what, 11 years old, 12 years old, give up on math, give up on science and fall behind for good. That's actually very uh, true and one of the problems we're trying to solve. So we find that um, research, research has shown that uh, girls are very interested in math and science um, when they're younger and the, the numbers fall off a cliff at the age of 10 to 12. But we found that when we uh, engage them at that time with something fun that's exciting, that could represent their interests, they actually start to get more interested in topics that otherwise they would have self-selected out of. I'll tell you that my girls who are 11 and 12 are, having heard this from me for the last six years or so, are so all in on math right now. And I sat with my, my 12-year-old. We went to lunch at Zuni Cafe in San Francisco. It was the two of us, daughter-daddy night, daughter-daughter day. And, and she was showing me how to calculate the area of a trapezoid on the napkin or on the, on the, on the tablecloth, <laughs> uh, just the paper tablecloth, just so she could demonstrate to me how it worked and well, you're teach doing me something the math because right. she's into it. Well, uh, yeah, we're... They did it wrong with me because I couldn't remember. So it's good to have their help. Well, you know, you go to your website and there's some really cool um, kits that kids can buy. They're not inexpensive. Some of them are a couple hundred dollars and stuff. But tell me, because I feel like it does have to start 
the building block, so to speak, it either comes from parents or it does come from schools where they get the kids excited. Where do you find, what's your biggest market that you guys are working within? So really we're trying to work on two parallel markets. We, uh, we're, we are an education company, but we do education at home and education at school. At home, it's more sort of uh, consumer products that, are, that parents will buy for their kids or, ne- or uncles and aunts, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of them is, are Christmas-related. So last year we did a partnership with Star Wars. We launched a product called the Droid Inventor Kit. I that see was it. it's really, really cool. So that was really kind of very much for for families at home, um, and then we also have a business for schools uh, where we work with schools to get integrated into their curriculum, either in school or after school programs. And so, in fact, today we're launching an announcement that's a partnership for schools in particular, so we can grow that part of the business as which, well. Which is the bigger part of your business, though? Is it the consumer side? The consumer you- right now is bigger, but it's it's just because the education space is a little slower. But um, we think there's huge a value. little slower. They're a lot slower. <laughs> A lot. So. <laughs> well, and, and talk to me about that. How that space sells. What is selling like into that market? Because we've heard lots of com- tech companies show up over the years to try to sell in the education market. Yeah. It's a very tricky. It seems like it's really sticky because they're slow to make a, a decision. But in which with is technology good when you're has, in. Yeah, yes. I don't know if that's true anymore though, because they don't. The, the, it seems like the schools that make a change are the ones that always make a change, and those are the ones you can actually get into. But the other ones are just too slow to make any kind of change. Well, when we had just started, we basically had a lot of teachers that would come to Libet's website, buy out of their own budget, sometimes out of their own pocket money. Then we started seeing that grow, where one teacher would influence another teacher, and you'd see a school account or administrator mm-hmm. or a tech buyer. Now we're starting to work more and more with districts, and uh, today, in fact, we're launching a partnership with Pearson one of the biggest um, uh, curriculum publishers in, in the country and, and, and really the world uh, to integrate into curriculum nationwide. I do also wonder about companies. Like, what is their involvement with you? That they've got to be looking down down the road and saying, we're going to need engineers. We're going to need, you know, computer science graduates, men and women, girls and boys alike, to make sure that they've got, you know, the labor pool that they're going to need down the road. What's their involvement? We've done some partnerships with uh, with tech companies. Most recently, when we uh, launched the Droid Inventor Kit in the um, in Christmas, we did a, something called the Droidathon with Lucasfilm, where we invited some of the best tech companies in San Francisco. Um, we invited Google and Fitbit and Twitter and Instagram uh, and a few others, where the uh, engineers in those companies were inventing their own droids, and then we invent, invent, invited kids' foundations and organizations to judge the inventions of the adults. And so you had like the YMCA or uh, Boys and Girls Club judging the inventions of engineers and basically reverse inspire them. Do you see yourself kind of like Dean Kamen in First Robotics? I'm sure you're familiar with we're them. We're huge fans of Dean Kamen we and what too. they've done in First Robotics. What we th- we like to think Me is that three. we can. Add <laughs> <laughs> we're all in on it. We love we love uh, what they do, and what we'd like to add is also stuff outside. Of robotics, so uh, art, um, uh, arts and craft, design thinking, music, um, uh, things that are not also learning how to code, not just robots. Um, and so that's why we're excited about this partnership. And they actually learn what it is because I'm thinking about. I'm a daughter of uh, of an engineer. I have a sister who's an engineer. I mean, you know, they actually learned about circuits and all that good stuff. I mean, this you showed how these things come together, but do they really understand the dynamics of how it works? So, in when we're doing consumer products, uh, it's uh, it's play first, learn second. When we do education products, it's learn first, play second. And so. Um, in for for school programs, there's more curriculum. It's more rigorous. It's uh, lesson plans that are attached to standards. Um, uh, this program that we launched called Elevate Learning is all about science and engineering, and it's about learning how constellations um, uh, form. It's about uh, learning how to create mechanics. Uh, it's about learning how earthquakes uh, for, uh, yeah. work and all of that stuff. And so these these lessons, uh, we we have these hands-on activities and paired them with these Pearson lessons. They become together very 
uh, well-rounded as well as tight to standards, but also extremely fun. Corey, look, there's a rule your room kit. Uh, why not? Rule your room. What's that mean? Create touch-activated inventions to control your stuff. Oh, that's stuff. cool. That is great. For pranks and for sibling, uh, sibling <laughs> pranks. Maybe and... that's a good idea. Maybe not so much. I know. Rule, rule your sister's room. It's going to end up in my house. <laughs> Listen, good luck. Um, come back. Let us know how things are going. Thank you. I'd love to. Really Company's cool called Little Bits. Little Bits. And it's Aya Badir. She's founder and chief executive officer of Little Bits right here in New York City. Thank you so much. Bloomberg Markets, Carol Master, Corey Johnson. We've just been looking at the website. We just want one. <laughs> That's why the delay. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. The I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. It's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers on this Monday afternoon, starting with the S&P 500. Most names in the S&P lower today, 396. To be specific, 106 higher, three unchanged. Your number three gainer, though, in the S&P 500 is Netflix. That stock up another mm, almost 10%. Let me just take a look at the close here. Um, forgive me, up about 3.6%, uh, up almost 10 bucks to $284.59 a share. Kind of surprised, Corey. Netflix is up 48% here already in 2017. There was an interesting story that caught me earlier uh, on the Bloomberg, and it just said, you know, thanks largely to its eye-popping subscriber additions last quarter, Netflix shares have gained 26% in just seven trading days, and that was just through Friday. And that added about $24.7 billion uh, to Netflix's valuation. That's more than the entire market cap of Showtime owner CBS Corporation. So, uh, you know, it's been kind of full steam ahead, if you will, for Netflix. And uh, there's another story, too, on the Bloomberg today. just talks about um, Altice adding Netflix to its video platform. Uh, so just kind of adding it, giving it more, more access, it. more places to see it. But anyway, Netflix, our number three gainer in the S&P 500 today, up another 3.6%. Uh, in in the in my years when I used to go to a, a lot of financial conferences when I was in finance and in different journalism jobs, yeah. there were some stocks, some tech stocks you just go see all the time, and and they were not terribly interesting, but they're around. They're big tech companies that didn't get a lot of coverage. One of these is Maxim Integrated Products, San Jose-based uh, chip maker. Fundamentally, makes switches and and battery management devices, switches and, and and chips and things that manage all these sorts of things that happen with inside a computer and within a phone. Uh, Maxim is a f big company. It's a fifteen billion dollar company called fourteen and a half stock yeah. up. Big time in the final moments of trading, right before the close, CNBC broke a story that said that Renaissance Technologies might be looking at acquiring Maxim uh, and uh, that a deal may be imminent, but at least they're looking at it. And Maxim's share is just off to the races. Uh, the stock uh, um, uh, growing at a decent clip, growing revenue to growing earnings about 13 or 10, uh, call it 10% year over year, but now has a PE ratio of 28, 27.4, thanks to uh, this story. Uh, stock price jumping 
up seven bucks a share to close at 66.27. That's a 12% rise, about 13, but it was down a little bit before that. So uh, shares of Maxim up fantastically. Uh, and again, it's a San Jose based company. It's been around since uh, 1983, but they make uh, chips that do uh, linear mixed signal integrated uh, uh, chips that work um, within phones. And quite often they're the, the thing that will take an analog signal and transfer it into a digital signal. So you need this on all kinds of phones, and they've done quite well over the years, uh, even though revenues are growing only at about uh, 8% this year. Hey, just quickly, I want to mention shares of Ford Motor Company, because that stock was the number three decliner in the S&P 500. Shares of Ford down uh, about 4.5% in today's session. That's about a 53-cent decline, going down to $11.12 a share at the close. Ford shares now down almost 10% this year. Of course, uh, was it last week or the week before that we got uh, their latest quarterly release, and there was a disappointment in terms of some of their results. But again, Ford taking a little bit more of a beating today, number three decliner in the S&P. And when I look for stories and news trends, and the biggest surge in news, the third biggest surge in news on the Bloomberg terminal uh, was of a company that, whose stock was down again today, and that's Wynn Resorts. Um, Wynn Resorts shares uh, uh, we're down uh, on Friday as well. I uh, want to look at the percentage changes. So it was down 10% on Friday, another 9% today when we find out that the uh, founder of the company, Steve Wynn, is stepping down as the Republican national chair after a stories of, of se- uh, serious sexual harassment uh, were in the Wall Street Journal last week. Um, and uh, and a big change for this company. So the CEO stepping away from his job as the RNC, Republican National Committee chairman. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I mentioned on Friday, uh, Todd Fernandez, my friend, the great short seller, uh, warns uh, investors – you should know if your uh, your chief executive has any history of sexual harassment allegations because it poses a new risk in this era to investors, and investors ought to know this and pay some attention to the his- their, their CEO's history. All right, let's get to the volatility index report on this Monday. And the VIX down, forgive me, the VIX up two and a half points uh Closing at 13.65, that's a gain of about 23% from uh, where we saw it close on Friday. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Dave Wilson joins us right now, lover boy himself, with his stock of the day. And that would be IOVANCE Biotherapeutics, Corey. This is a company that doesn't make semiconductors. No, they don't. They're pursuing cancer treatments that harness patients' immune systems to fight the disease. It's an area that some of the biggest drug companies are looking at as well, uh, AstraZeneca and Bristol-Myers Squibb, to name two. Uh, IOVANCE has one drug under development for skin cancer that doesn't respond to chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Another treatment's being tested for head and neck cancer as well as cervical cancer. IOVANCE has been publicly traded since 2010. The ticker is IOVA. Now, the shares plunged within their first year, three years of trading. Uh, They've languished at lower prices since then. Even so, analysts have been unanimous in their support for IOVANS. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows the shares have had nothing but buy recommendations since coverage began about four years ago. This month, analysts have been raising price estimates. Chart and Capital Markets did so last Monday. H.C. Wainwright followed on Thursday. And today, it was Wells Fargo's turn. Analyst Jim Birchenoff lifted his projection by 31% to $23 a share. Now, iAvance rose as much as 10% in today's trading, reached a five-year high, did back off later in the day. Nonetheless, still up 
5.1% on the day. And for this month, it has a gain of 80%. That's 80%. a big gain. 80%. What was the market cap on that guy? Yeah. Right, we're talking, uh, just take a quick look here, uh, $1.2 billion. Now it today's is, game. yes. Yeah. Chardon and H.G. Wainwright, those are those are small cap firms of, of days of yore. Thank you very much, Dave Wilson. Dave Wilson is our stock editor here at Bloomberg, and this is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.